Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. I am Steve Johnson and it is good to be with you as always. I tried to record this once already and I kept getting interrupted. First I got a phone call that was unexpected and it started ringing while I was recording. Then I had to uh, put my computer to the side uh, because I had a visit from a relative who brought me some food and uh, you know, brought me some uh, McDonald's over, so I was able to enjoy that and, and ate with me, and I appreciated that. Um, but when I shut my computer, it auto-saved my, my thing, and I wasn't done with it yet, and I didn't want to put this in two parts, so I'm starting it over. I deleted my first attempt, and now we're going again. So welcome to the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. This is Steve Johnson. It is good to be with you as always. I only have about an hour until um, I need to be there for the Life Church service. Um, we can try to get there a little bit early to do our little uh, our little Zoom video thing at the beginning, um, which means I just have a little bit over an hour. So hopefully, I can get these last six characteristics of God in before the end of uh, that hour. And for the last three episodes, we've been going through 24 characteristics of God's uh, moral, or God's attributes. 24 of God's attributes. Now, as I've said in the previous three times that I've done this, that doesn't mean that God only has three, uh, it doesn't mean that God only has um 24 attributes and that this is a completely exhaustive list it also doesn't mean that the verses I look up are comprehensive of everything God of everything the Bible has to say about a particular characteristic of God this is not an exhaustive list but it is a detailed one it's very well done it's from the precept of ministries um, Bible study on the book of Genesis they've listed 24 attributes here there's no particular order to them as far as I can tell. They aren't alphabetized and they're not saying that one characteristic is more valuable or means more or is more suited to this particular book than the others. I don't think there's any real um, there's no real order to them I guess just to repeat myself, there's no real order to them. But nonetheless, like I said, this is a very detailed list. And while it is not exhaustive, it is, there's, there's a lot here. So we've spent about three hours or three podcasts, maybe a little less than three hours total, going through the 24 characteristics of God that are listed here. And we're now on the last six which is what this particular episode is going to cover. And the first one we're going to look at of these last six is the love of God. God is loving. Now, what does that mean to say that God is loving? Because we hear a lot about love today. I love pizza. I love my brother. I love my sister. I love my mom. I love my dad. I love my wife. I love my husband. I love my fill-in-the-blank whatever. I love my car. We use the word love a lot. I love that show. That's my favorite show. I love that show. Oh, I love that donut. Oh, that's so good. Or we talk about sexual encounters in reference to love, even though some sexual encounters have nothing to do with love. It has a lot more to do with lust, at least from the biblical point of view. Um, and then there's the actual love that is in marriage and the sexual encounter or whatever. Um, so we have a lot of different meanings for that one word love. But what does it mean when we talk about God is love? What does that mean? Does that mean that we all get warm fuzzies and he just, he looks at everybody down here and goes, Oh, you guys, you guys, I love all of you. You're so wonderful. Everything you do is so good. You just give me all kinds of warm fuzzies and make me want to hug myself. What does it mean? 
when the Bible says God is loving? Well, their definition here in the precept ministry study says that God not only loves, but he is love, according to 1 John 4, 8, which is one of the verses we're going to be looking at in uh, when we look at the love of God in Scripture. God gives himself to and for others, even to laying down his life, even to laying down the life of his son. He wills his creature's highest good. This love is not based on the worth, response, or merit of the object being loved. That's why Jesus could make a statement like, love your enemies. Well, how can I love my enemies? Because it's not on the basis of whether or not they deserve it or have earned it, or whether or not they deserve something far worse. Loving your enemies is not done because of what they're doing for you. It, the love of God is based off of the agape love, or the love of God is based on his nature and his characteristics of himself. It's based on who he is, not the, worthy, not the worthiness of the object. So the first uh, verse we're going to look at here for the love of God is Romans 5, 8. Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. And we're going to use, as we've been doing lately, the Word of Promise audio Bible to listen to this. And let me see if I can get it to play now. I always have this problem. I don't know why. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So again, it wasn't based on our worthiness, how good we are, or anything like that. It's not like God just saw us and went, man, I can't help but love those people. Look how awesome they are. No, while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God in our wicked minds, Christ died for us. As Jesus would say later, or would say, not later, but would say in one of the Gospels, would say, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Now the next verse we're going to look at is 1 John 4, 8, which is one of the foundational verses on the love of God, as I've already stated here. Here we go. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Who knew the Apostle John sounded exactly like Lou Gossett Jr.? <laughs> but, uh, yeah. God is love. God doesn't just show love. He is love. Love is God. God is love. It is who he is. The scripture plainly says so there in 1 John 4, 8. And that's not the only verse where that is stated. But that is the probably the best, most succinct version of that in Scripture or anywhere else. Three words, God is love. The next verse we're going to look at in relation to the love of God is probably the most famous verse in the entire Bible. It's John 3.16. If you, you know, we used to, back in major sporting events, the NCAA Finals, the World Series, the NBA Finals, the Super Bowl, or just anywhere on TV where there was a live event. Sometimes you'd see signs or people would hold up signs. John 3.16. And I remember the first time I saw this, it wasn't actually John 3.16. It was John 3.3. But I saw it at WrestleMania 8 in Indianapolis, Indiana in uh, 1992. Um, and I thought when I saw this, uh, well, I saw John 3.3. 3. I didn't know what the 3.3 3 meant, but I thought that John 3.3 3 was, you know, like the guy's name was John sitting there in the crowd. I was only like eight years old at the time. And I didn't, you know, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, really. didn't know much about the Bible. I didn't know really anything about it. So I thought John 3.3, 3, I thought, okay, it's uh, John, hey, you know, my name was John, and the 3-3, three, three, I thought maybe he was trying to say what time it was, but he 
forgot to put the zero on the end. I didn't know what it was. Uh, it wasn't until about nine years later before I had a clue as to what any of that was. Um, but anyway, John 3.16 is probably the most famous verse in the Bible. Although I would say a close second is probably Matthew 7.1 because of all the heathens out there that like to quote it, judge not lest ye be judged. And they like to say, see, see, you can't say anything about what I'm saying because Jesus said, judge not. And that's not at all what that means. I've already covered this on a previous podcast. I'm not going to go through it all again right now, but that doesn't mean what most people think it means. Uh, matter of fact, it means just the opposite um, when people say that. But next to that verse, this is, or at least used to be, the most famous verse in the entire Bible. John chapter 3 and verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. While we were Christ's sinners, Christ died for us. And God so loved the world everybody in it no matter what they've done who they are no matter their social status their skin color their economic status what they've done in their lives whether they were upstanding members of society or whether they were the dregs of society from the religious rulers who crucified him or who well they didn't crucify him from the religious leaders who pushed for his crucifixion all the way down to the tax collectors and prostitutes and sexually immoral Jesus died for one and all for God so loved the world that he gave Jesus Christ so that all we have to do is put our trust and faith in what he did on the cross and that pardon that he died to purchase for us and we are set free from sin and its penalty. The next passage we're going to look at, the last one, now again, this is not an exhaustive list, this is only four. Um, we could probably do, I could do a podcast on the love of God the rest of my life and not exhaust the subject. But, the last passage that's on this particular Bible study for this subject of the love of God is Ephesians chapter 3 verses 17 through 19 that's Ephesians chapter 3 verses 17 through 19 man I need to clean that litter box out Woo! but I'm gonna try to uh, not do that right now because I'm on a time crunch here so I want to get this podcast done before it's time for the Life Church service. Ephesians 3, 17 through 19. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, the love of Christ passes knowledge. He, in some ways, it's very a lot. How, how could Jesus tell me to love my enemies? What sense does that even make? The first, the, the last shall be first. What? What? <laughs> uh, blessed are you when people persecute you. What? Rejoice even. Huh? Yeah. The kingdom way, God's kingdom is very different from any naturally human way. The next characteristic of God we're going to look at here is God's goodness. God is good. What does that mean to say God is good? In God's goodness, He gives to others not according to what they deserve, but according to His good will and kindness toward them. If He gave me what I deserved, I would be burning in hell right now and forever. And so would you. If he gave you 
what you deserved, if he gave me what I deserve. I might not feel like Paul did that I'm the chief of sinners, but there are times in my life where I've sought to challenge him for his title. <laughs> Paul, that is, when he called himself the chief of sinners. Um, now we're going to look at two verses related to the goodness of God. Both of these are in the Old Testament, whereas the last four were in the New. These two are in the Old Testament. We're going to look at 2 Chronicles 5.13 first. That is, 2 Chronicles, that is, right after 1 Chronicles, for those of you that are trying to keep up. Chapter 5 and verse 13. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And the house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. The Lord is good. His mercy endures forever. So I'm only going to be in heaven because of the mercy of God, not because I've earned it or deserve it. Anybody who goes to heaven is going to go because of God's graciousness and the fact that we have accepted what he did, which he didn't have to do on our behalf. His mercy endures forever. So when I get to heaven, it's not like I'm going to be there for a couple of thousand years and then God's going to go, you know what? I'm tired of you. I don't know why I ever let you in here. You're going south. I'm tired of it. No, his mercy endures forever. Thank God for that. The next verse we're going to look at is Psalm 106 in verse 1. That is the first verse of Psalm 106. There are 150 psalms total in the book of Psalms, and we're going to look at Psalm 106 in the first verse. Very short. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, his love endures forever. I like that song. I don't know if you've ever heard that or not, but it's very good. So um, this next characteristic we're going to look at, this one trips some people up because you hear about the love of God and you hear about the goodness of God. So the next one is the wrath of God. And people go, wait a minute, that, doesn't sound, that sounds like a contradiction. God is loving and God is good, but he's also full of wrath. Well, it's not a contradiction. They exist simultaneously and they work in concert with each other. God's characteristics are not contra contradictory. They are for... They all exist at the same time. So, what is the wrath of God? The wrath of God states, God hates all that is unrighteous. God hates everything that is unrighteous. And he punishes all unrighteousness. Whatever is inconsistent with his holy standard must ultimately be atoned for or consumed. This is why Jesus had to die on the cross. If there was any way for God to overlook our sins and still allow us to be in his presence and have relationship with him and go to heaven, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die on the cross. But there was no other way because God is holy and perfect and pure and he cannot be defiled by having sin and unrighteousness in his presence. His very nature would consume it because it can't, it can't be in the presence of anything that is beneath him. That's how good and how high and how holy he is. 
once we sin, we're all screwed then because we're, we can't do anything to reclaim perfection once we've soiled ourselves even a little bit. We can no longer be clean again. That's why Jesus came and died on the cross. Jesus, Jesus' blood washed away our sins, takes all that away, cleans it all up. He was the only perfect human being, being God's Son and God in the flesh. He was the only perfect human being, and thus the only person qualified to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Thus, all of the wrath of God, his Father, was poured out on Jesus so that we could go free. We broke the law, and Jesus paid our fine. The wrath of God, we're going to look at five different passages for this, a total of six verses. The first one we're going to look at is Romans chapter 1 and verse 18. It's already 8.30, I've got 45 minutes here, I'm really going to try to get this done here. Romans 1.18 For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The problem with people who don't believe in God isn't a lack of evidence. It's because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's why we can't argue anybody into the kingdom because in the end it's not a matter of a lack of head knowledge. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of am I willing to turn from my sin, repent of it, and trust Christ instead, going the other direction. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Everything that isn't of God, everything that isn't right, the wrath of God is revealed against it. We've lost in our society, in our lives, we've lost a, in such a desire to be seeker-friendly and not turn people away from God. So we focus on the characteristics of God that are most popular, that make people feel good, that we've lost, I feel like we've lost a, a firm grasp on just how serious sin is. just how the predicament that everyone is in without Jesus. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness. Every little bit of it. So the next verse we're going to look at here is John, the Gospel of John. We're going to go back there. We've already been there once tonight. We're going to look at John chapter 3 and verse 36. John 3, 36. It's the last verse of John chapter 3. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. He who believes in the Son of God has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So if you're listening to me right now, and you have not applied the blood of Jesus to your own life by confessing and trusting him as your Savior, if you have not believed in your heart and confessed with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and meant that from your heart, then the wrath of God abides on you as we speak. You're a sinner awaiting your sentence. But if you believe in the Son, you can have everlasting life. And that's not just a length of time, it's a quality of life. But if not, the wrath of God abides on you right now as we speak.
And that's not a position you still want to be in when you die and then face eternity. Because there's no going back after that. The next one we're going to look at is 2 Chronicles chapter 19 and verse 2. 2 Chronicles 19.2 And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him. Hanani. And said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Therefore the wrath of the Lord is upon you. The wrath of the Lord is upon you. Why? Because you love those who... You help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord. Aren't we supposed to love everyone? Yes, we are. But what are we talking about here when we're talking about loving those who hate? Well, it basically means it's not just, okay, you know, I, I love you so much that I want you to be different. It's loving them as they are in their sin being happy with what they're doing, um, being content with, and even, you know, or whatever. It, helping the wicked is not loving them. Helping the wicked in their wickedness is not love, it's not tolerance, it's making you an accomplice of what they're doing. And the wrath of God abides on you if you are helping them in any way to promote their ungodly, unrighteous lifestyles. The next verse or verses we're going to look at, there's two verses in this passage we're going to look at on the wrath of God, is Colossians chapter 3 verses 5 and 6 therefore put to death your members which are on the earth fornication uncleanness passion evil desire and covetousness which is idolatry because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience do you obey God? I'm not talking about are you perfect right now. I'm talking about are you, is your lifestyle one of consistent obedience to God? Or are you one of the sons of disobedience? The last verse we're going to look at with the wrath of God not the uh, hot sauce, but the actual wrath of God, is Revelation chapter 15 and verse number 7. Revelation 15, 7. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So in the tribulation, in the end times, the last seven years before Jesus returns, there are three sets of judgments that will be poured out by God and His wrath upon an unbelieving world. These are called the seven seal judgments, the seven bowl judgments, and the seven trumpet, or excuse me, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls. And this here is the seven bowls that they were handed that are full of the wrath of God that will then be poured out on the world. It's not a time I want to be here for. The fourth of these six characteristics we're going to look at on the characteristics of God is truthfulness. God is truthful. What does that mean? God's spirit is the truth, and all that God says is true and not a lie. Whether people choose to believe it or not is irrelevant. What God says is always true. 
even if it's not popular, even if most of the world disagrees with it, even if everybody you knows, even if everybody you know disagrees with it, and you're the outcast. What God says is true. If everyone on earth rejected the truth, it would still be true. There was a time when millions of people were on earth right before the flood, when everybody in the world except for eight people had rejected the truth of God, but it was still true. The truth is not up for debate. It's not, well, it's, Established truth is not up for debate. We can debate on what the truth is on something. But it's once something is true, it doesn't... It, it's The kind of truth I'm talking about is something that is true for all people at all times and all situations. Everything. God is truthful because He is the basis and standard of truth. Therefore, He defines it. This is his universe after all. The first verse we're going to look at for this, we're going to look at two from the book of 1 John. First one we're going to look at is 1 John 5, 6, and then 1 John 2, 27. It's 1 John chapter 5 and verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. The Spirit is truth. If you have God's Holy Spirit living on the inside of you, which you can only get through a relationship with Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of truth is living in you. The next verse we're going to look at is 1 John chapter 2 and verse 27. If it will play. It's not wanting to play for me here. Hang on. Let's click on it again. But the anointing which you have received from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. And now... The anointing which you receive from him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, just as it has taught you, you will abide in him. What abides in you is true. The spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit another reference to that the next verse we're going to look at here we're going to go to the old testament for a minute we're going to go to numbers chapter 23 and verse 19 this is numbers chapter 23 in verse 19 god is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man, that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? God is not a man that he should lie. I made this point in the last episode. God can't lie because whatever he says is. So, I mean... God is truth. God is love. God is truth. The next verse we're going to look at is the Gospel of John again. Chapter 17 in verse 17. These are the words of Jesus here. 
speaking to his disciples not long before he was arrested and eventually sanctify them by your truth your word is truth before he was eventually taken to be crucified sanctify them by your truth your word is truth what is the basis or standard of truth your word jesus says your word is the bible the bible the old and new testaments your word is truth the last word verse we're going to look at for the truth of god god's truthfulness is titus chapter 1 and verse number 2 hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began so again Titus 1 2 God can't lie it's right there God can't lie so therefore we have the hope of eternal life because God promised it and he can't lie We've got two more characteristics we're going to look at here, and I've got now about 30 minutes before I need to be off of here, so we're making very good time tonight. The next one we're going to look at is the faithfulness of God. God is faithful. What does that mean? It means God is always true to his promises. Since God cannot lie, as we just saw from Titus 1-2, he does not draw back from promises of blessing and or judgment he has made. So if God says, if this happens, you will be blessed, he doesn't back away from that. And if he promises, if you, don't, if you do this or don't do this, then judgment will come. He doesn't back away from that either. God is totally steadfast to what he has spoken. That's why I said that the only limitations that God has are those that he places on himself. So when God gives us free will, and I say, God can't violate your free will, it's not because God is so, God has, is limited and that he's not able to. It's not that he's like, you know, he's not powerful enough that he's not able to, to, to override your will. It's that he's bound by his word. He is faithful so that when he speaks something, if he says, I've given you dominion, he's given us dominion, even if we screw it up. He says that I'm not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And then earlier on, he says that most people are on the road to destruction. But if it's God's will for everybody to go to heaven and to be on the narrow road, how could most people be going to destruction? Because God has made it so and set it up to where that people have the choice. God did not create willless automatons. He did not create robots to where we had no say. And you know, if, if I've heard Skip Heitzig give this example. If you could pull a string on a doll and it would go, I love you. If you're fulfilled by that, there's something wrong with you. Because there's no, the doll is not its own being. It doesn't have any say over itself. It's a mechanical response. I love you. There's, there's nothing there. It's just, it's, 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 not, it's not the same as if someone from their own heart and will and volition looks at you and with complete genuineness says, I love you. It's different. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to love him. He wants that relationship restored with him. He doesn't want to force us to do it. So he limited himself by his own word and gave us choices. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Sin is crouching at the door, but you must master it. And 
the next one we're going to look at here, the next, uh, uh, the, the two verses in regards to God's faithfulness. The first one here is Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Bible, the last book of the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible, the Torah or the Pentateuch. It's, the last, it's Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Bible, chapter 7 and verse 9. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Thousand generations basically is an Old Testament way of saying forever. It's not like people were counting, okay, we're on the 999th generation, one more generation, and then, um, you know, God's mercy is over. That's not, that's missing the point. It's like when Jesus told Peter to forgive 70 times 7. He wasn't expecting people to be carrying around clip, clipboards going, all right. I've forgiven you 489 times. One more, buddy, and it's on. We're going to fight, and I'm going to... That wasn't the point. The point is, is that the number is so high that you don't count it, that you just keep forgiving, or that God's mercy just keeps flowing. That's why elsewhere it says that it's everlasting. It doesn't put a limit on it, a number, because this wasn't meant to be like a thousand... It was meant to be God's mercy is endures forever as the scripture says and as we've read earlier all right so the next verse we're going to look at now is second timothy chapter 2 and verse 13 second timothy chapter 2 and verse 13 it's a short one if we are faithless he remains faithful he cannot deny himself. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. If I accept Christ and I've truly ex accepted the pardon that he died to purchase for me, and then later on, let's say I go and I slip back into a particular sin, did God go, oh gosh, I didn't know you were going to do that. If, you, if I knew that, I wouldn't have sa saved you. Well, I'm done with you. I wash my hands of you. Plop. Gives us chances. Even the lost world, he gives, I mean, we should all be zapped dead and go to hell forever the first time we ever sin when we're young. Before faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. He keeps giving us chances. Even though we don't deserve any, he gives us countless chances. To turn to him every second of every day is a chance to turn to God because he is faithful even when we are faithless the last characteristic of God we're going to look at tonight this one really got Oprah Winfrey hung up she didn't like this but a lot of people don't like it but it's for real not all jealousy is bad some jealousy is good because God is a jealous God. God's jealous. What? Yeah, God is jealous. That means that God is unwilling to share what is his. So God doesn't want us to share things? Let's look at the... Before we dive into what this means and what it doesn't mean, let's look at all the verses all the passages here there's four of them on the jealousy of God I feel like it would be easier to listen to these first and then talk about what they mean and what the jealousy of God mean when it's when it says that he's unwilling to share what is his let's listen to these verses and maybe that will help clear up for anybody who maybe is like huh what that doesn't sound like God Let's, let's look at this. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 5. 
is where we will begin in the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So, God is a jealous God, meaning, in this context, in these verses, he's, he's talking to his people, he's giving them the Ten Commandments, which is his moral law that has always existed. He codified the moral law of the Ten Commandments in the Law of Moses, but it even predates that. So God gives the, in this here in the Ten Commandments, he says, I'm a jealous God. You are my people. I made you for me. So I don't want you giving yourself over to, an, uh, to another idol, to, another, to a false god, to another person, to anything in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. I don't want you to give yourself to anything else but me. It's the same way that a spouse should be jealous for their, for their spouse. Meaning if you are married to someone and you expect them to love you and only you, to put you first above any other human relationship, be that children, be that your parents, be that your family, be that your friends, be that anything or anyone else, that person is the end-all be-all of everything except for God. The God's relationship, your relationship with God comes first. Second is your spouse. And that spouse has a right to be jealous and is perfectly righteous in their jealousy if you put someone else before that for any reason. And vice versa, the same is true with the other spouse. In the same way, that's why God compares his relationship with the church to marriage. Because this is how he sees it. I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous for you. He loves us so much that he, he wants us to be devoted to him and no other. The next verse we're going to look at is Exodus chapter 34. In verse 14, Exodus 34, 14. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. God is so jealous, he even says here, whose name is Jealous. One of his identifying names is Jealous. He has a lot of different names in the Bible, but one of them, if somebody said, well, God, what's your name? He could rightly say jealous is one of his names because he is jealous for his people. The next verse here is Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 24. Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 24. This is another. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He burns with jealousy to such a degree that it says he is a consuming fire. If you die in your sins, never having given yourself to him, he is a consuming fire. God is a jealous God, and rightly so. The next thing we're going to look at here is Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8. Isaiah 42, 8, the last verse we're going to look at for this particular study. Isaiah 42, 8. 
on the jealousy of God. If we can get this to play, it's having a hard time playing again. Hang on one moment. Having a technical difficulty here. I am the Lord. That is my name. And my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I will not give to another. God is jealous for his glory. He wants us to put him above anything else in the same way that a husband or wife wants and is jealous for that attention that only the spouse can give to that person, humanly speaking. In the same way, God was jealous for his glory. He doesn't want that glory given to another. He doesn't want our praise going to another. He wants it for himself because it is rightly his and belongs to him. So God is a jealous God. And I hope, therefore, when, it, when, it, when this says that God is unwilling to share what is his, I hope now that that makes more sense now that we've gone through those passages when we say that God is a jealous God. So, thank you very much for listening to this. I finished with 14 minutes to spare. I would say that's pretty good. Um, so, I look forward to being with you all on the next episode of the Wisdom on Wheels podcast when we will begin talking about Genesis chapter 42. There are 50 chapters in Genesis, and we're going to begin 42 next time. We are getting close to the end. Another 4,000 years and we ought to be there. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, anyway, this has taken me a really long time to go through Genesis this way. But I thank all of you who have been patient and gone through this journey with me from the very beginning. I look forward to getting into Exodus with you after we finish with Genesis. This is great. It's a lot of... I've enjoyed this and I hope you have as well. Um, so... If you would like to, if you have any questions or comments or thoughts how I could improve the podcast, make it better, is there something you would like me to cover that I haven't, something you would like me to talk about that I haven't, a question for me, an objection to something that I've said, if you think I'm wrong about something or if you don't like something, uh, any feedback at all, positive, negative, whatever. Uh, you can email me at wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. That's all one word, wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. That's where you can reach out to me, and I'll be happy to read anything that you send. Again, that's wisdomonwheels83 at gmail.com. Thank you very much. This has been Steve Johnson for the Wisdom on Wheels podcast. And I look forward to being with you again soon. God bless and have a great night.